0: This episode is brought to you by Morty, Buzzshot, Cogs, and Patreon supporters like you.
1: Cogs by Clockwork Dog is an easy to use platform for running interactive events, specializing in escape rooms. They have plug and play hardware that seamlessly integrates with their software, so you can create a show with lighting and sound cues all without having to write a single line of code. Map different kinds of inputs and outputs by building up simple logic steps, which determine what you want to happen and when. If you're new to immersive tech, COGS is perfect for you. Using simple building blocks, you can create any kind of puzzle in the software, and their system will tell the hardware exactly what to do. And if you're a seasoned maker, they have an abundance of tools to expand your capabilities. Create any form of logic by using their expression language build your own plugins for external software or hardware, and create your own custom content for screens for things like touchscreen gaming. The COGS Starter Set is normally valued at $257, but our listeners can get the Starter Set today for only $130 with free shipping to the U.S. You can learn more and purchase your COGS Starter Set at cogs.show. Use code REPOD at checkout. That's R-E-P-O-D. Link and details in the show notes.
0: Welcome to the Reality Escape Pod, your lifeline when you need a getaway from the real world. I'm David Spira, alongside my co-host, PG Law. Together, we're exploring immersive gaming from all angles, and we'll be joined by guests who really know their stuff. Today's guests are Kellyanne and Brian Pletcher, they are best known for the incredible annual show Club Drosselmeyer, which reimagines the Nutcracker as a World War II techno-conspiracy that blends theater, puzzles, dance, narrative, and a sprinkling of chaos to produce an amazing immersive experience. They have been running it since 2016, and I have not missed a year. Welcome, Kellyan and Brian.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us conspiracy
1: is a great term it sounds like a sci-fi novel
0: sort of is
2: <laughs> <laughs> it sort of is it's a great word i i haven't used it to describe this show but i love it i might use it now
0: lisa and i have been big fans and supporters of club drosselmeyer possibly the biggest fans of club drosselmeyer
2: you guys are the best i love you guys thank you
0: Last year, we accidentally brought 30 people to a single performance. It was an unofficial Room Escape Artist event. Everyone had a really good time. And so after that, we decided maybe we should do something official with you guys. So this year, we're doing something different and making a Club Drosselmeyer event that Room Escape Artist is running on top of it. It's one day only. It's December 10th. And we are gathering for what we're calling Operation Nutcracker. It's a one-day event that adds some additional pre and post events, including an after party. Tickets are limited and they're available now at roomescapeartist.com. And we're going to be diving into all sorts of fun things that go on at Drosselmeyer. And where you both are coming from, from a creative and production standpoint.
1: So let's talk about your origin story. How did you both find yourselves in the immersive and puzzle worlds? Yeah,
3: I started collecting mechanical puzzles back in 2008 and got really into that. I started a blog, Brands Damn Puzzle Blog, uh, which I haven't updated since I think 2017. So nothing new there, but it sort of got me into the puzzle world. I've been attending the International Puzzle Party, which is a gathering of mechanical puzzle collecting enthusiasts since, I think, 2010. When you say mechanical puzzles, what do you mean by that? So a mechanical puzzle is anything you manipulate physically to achieve a goal. So like a puzzle box or a Rubik's cube or those metal tavern puzzles that you're trying to take the ring off, things like that. Or my personal
0: favorite, puzzle locks. Oh, yes. Puzzle locks. I love me some puzzle locks.
1: When we were in Boston for Recon, Kellyanne kept posting these shelfies, like these photos of (laughs) gorgeous shelves at their home that were just stuffed to the gills with mechanical puzzles. And these were gorgeous. Like these were like beautiful handcrafted wooden puzzles, all of these intricate metal ones. And they were like, anybody want to
2: come? <laughs> come play with our puzzles. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you guys would appreciate them. I was, I was luring you to our apartment to play with puzzles, but I knew the recon crew, they would appreciate them. And they did, we had a wonderful crew of people by.
1: It was like a museum. I was so impressed.
0: I've not yet been successfully lured to your apartment for puzzles, but I'm just saying, I'm open to being lured.
2: I can't believe we haven't done that yet. Okay. All right. You're, you will be lured soon.
0: Yeah. Next time. The key thing I think people should realize about mechanical puzzles is that there is this store-bought type that you see commonly. They're frequently laying on the tables in the lobbies of escape rooms, usually with a piece missing.
1: It's like the twisted nails that are interlocked.
0: Right. That's the entry point for this. But the deep end are these magnificent pieces of engineering art. And my advice to you is have friends who are really into mechanical puzzles.
1: Yeah, because they're expensive. Oh, no. Don't fall into the realm of the puzzle obsessed.
2: One <laughs> where you need a lot of storage. True.
1: Yeah. Send me the photos. I'll post. If, if you guys are comfortable, we'll put them in the show notes.
2: <laughs> yeah, totally.
0: Cool. And so, Brian, you found the mechanical world and that brought you into IPP or International Puzzle Party. Kellyanne, how did you find yourself wading into this whole world where puzzles and theater and storytelling are overlapping?
2: Brian was really into the international puzzle party, and he always needed a plus one, so I would go with him and chat with everybody and fiddle with puzzles. He is obviously the solver of the two of us since he uh, got into it and is one of the judges and is quite the collector, whereas I mostly just fiddle with things and chat with everybody. But as we started to get into those kinds of puzzles, we started doing more things like puzzled pint and like just different word puzzles and paper puzzles, which I found I was a little bit better at than the, the physical manipulation puzzles you and lisa oh uh, yeah yeah these wordy people i think is something that has words on paper i just feel more comfortable with it and brian do you remember back in the day we had this amazing idea of what if you could do like a room that had puzzles in it and you'd have to get out of the room with puzzles but we're like it would never work it would never work
3: Yeah. I swear I had the idea for escape rooms before it was a thing, but I couldn't get past the idea of wanting to make it a solo experience and the financials just don't really work out that way. So like, I just sort of dismissed it.
1: Well, because you come from mechanical puzzles where typically mechanical puzzles, they're handheld. Only one person can work on them at a time.
3: Exactly.
2: And in my background, I was a game designer. So initially I was an educator and then I ended up working with this company called Scavenger that did these sort of location-based games. A lot of scavenger hunts, but scavenger hunts very quickly devolve into puzzles. And I work with museums, which is the best because they have all the best stories and all the best content. And so if you're creating scavenger hunts related in some way to museums, it's a very short trip between that and content-based puzzles.
1: Okay. All the pieces, they're all sliding together. It's all (laughs) making sense now. (laughs) All making
2: sense, right?
0: I feel like so many different things in this space start far away from puzzles, but ultimately evolve towards them.
2: Yeah, I agree. Because when you have, I don't know, challenges and story. And I think something that was really common with the two of us is that we're used to people engaging with physical space, even though we both had experience designing in the digital space, We both really enjoyed the physical space. So when we sat down to think about what we're gonna do, it wasn't necessarily let's build a video game. Though we both have and can, and are capable of building video games, but the, the physical space is just such an exciting challenge.
0: I agree with you and I think a lot of people in this community are drawn towards the real life interaction and I think that's also where a lot of the social dynamics that have emerged in the escape room and puzzling communities they're about bonding with one another over play. Right. And that is something that I'm a big fan of. Kelian, you have done a lot of work with museums and libraries and also Club Drosselmeyer which we're going to dive deep into soon. All of your work, or at least a whole lot of it, seems to be underpinned by playing with history. What's driving that?
2: I mean, why not, right? If you're going to tell stories, there's no story that I could tell that would be even moderately as interesting as what actually happened. Why invent the wheel when there are so many good wheels there? And all of our characters from Club Drosselmeyer and also from other shows that we've built Save the Mundacks and the Night Cafe, all based on real people. There's nothing more fascinating than real people, right? They always do weird stuff. It's always something that you're not going to expect. So yeah, I I just find that history, they just come up with more than I could ever invent.
0: I agree with you. I also have a history degree. And
2: Uh, (laughs) I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, I often find myself reflecting on history and fiction and thinking about, well, If this was written in a story, it would not be believable, but it actually happened. It actually went down this way.
2: Yeah, the real things that happened are just so incredible. And sometimes I do feel like for all of my work, I'll add something that's whimsical and weird and wild and crazy. And I think that helps people to accept the real things that happened more readily because it's just such a high barrier to entry when you see that these things actually happen in history. And you're like, no way that couldn't have possibly happened. And then you're like, oh, and look, there's a robot over there. And you're like, oh, okay, well, it's a robot. You know, somehow it's easier to digest the real story. I
0: also feel like one of the things that is a byproduct of your approach here with adding a little bit of whimsy is that you make it clear you're playing with history, but then you deviate from it just enough that it gives you the creative license to not have to, like, present a textbook.
2: That's the other hard part about history is that sometimes it's brutal, right? We're working with World War II history. I mean,
0: nothing bad happened between 1939
2: and 1945. Oh, no, no, it's all <laughs> sweetness and light.
1: I see what you mean, though, David, if there's like a random robot, then you're not going to get that one person who's going to be like, but actually, <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. Can, you got this one little thing wrong. And now, now the entire thing is unbelievable to me.
2: <laughs> Right, right. And, you know, with historical reenactors, there's always that sense of, oh, you study the Civil War. Oh, what battle? What corner of what battle? What person of what corner of what battle? What day of what person of what corner of what battle? <laughs> the amount of detail that you can start to go into and scrap over is just endless. And so by adding the fictional element to that, <laughs> then there is no right answer. And I think that helps us to get people where we want them to be rather than arguing over what actually happened happened on a certain day.
1: Well, to get into the detail, (laughs) let's dive into what I suspect will be the most complicated question of this episode, which is, what is Club
2: Drosselmeyer? Oh, I should have known you were going to ask me that. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's too hard. It's too, I just, yeah, you just have to see it. you will figure it out.
0: I think this may be the most complicated question we've asked in six seasons of this show. (laughs)
2: Give me the one minute elevator pitch. (laughs) Okay. I'd like to tell people that it's an interactive nutcracker in swing time and it's interactive, right? Not just immersive, but interactive. It is a game. It is a Nutcracker. It's actually all based on Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite. We have our own original arrangement for an eight-piece swing band of all of the songs from the original Nutcracker Suite, and we have people dance these incredible performances, and it's all done in 1940s, so it's a big nightclub from the 1940s, and based on Boston history. But of course, the interactive part is the part where it's a game. If you want to play, you can. If you don't want to play, it's still a wonderful night in a beautiful environment with a great bar and vintage outfits and incredible band. And we actually do have people that come that don't even realize that there's a game layer. They'll just show up and sit and look fabulous and dance and watch the floor shows.
0: I have to imagine that the people who have no idea that there's a game layer, they must be sitting there with their drink being like, The audience is really moving around a lot
2: (laughs) (laughs) why are they talking so much
0: (laughs) doesn't seem like the place this is supposed to be a show they should sit down and be respectful
2: (laughs) i know right they know everybody (laughs) (laughs) yeah i kind of wonder about that but it's a nice setup because it's also something that you can bring other people to and i know you've gone with lisa's parents before
0: Almost every year we've gone with Lisa's parents and to give a little frame up of the different types of experiences you can have, because we all do something really different. When I'm at Club Drosselmeyer, I am up and about interacting with characters and just being the social butterfly. Lisa is usually solving a lot of puzzles with her mom. We also will steal a couple dances in the middle of the show. And then Lisa's father has never been a huge puzzle person and he's very low key and he has really enjoyed every year he comes, he has a drink, he watches his daughter and his wife crush some puzzles. He watches all of the dancers and the stage performances and just has a lovely chill time. And then there are also the people who just get up and dance. They don't do anything else.
2: Yeah. The band plays all night and all of the songs are entirely danceable. Yeah. I always wonder how I would play if I were a guest and I'm like, oh gosh, would I puzzle or would I just dance all night? It's a really good band. It's a
0: phenomenal (laughs) band. For me, the thing that makes the magic of Club Drosselmeyer work is the fact that it just is what you as an individual want it to be that night. And that is such a strange thing in the immersive world. If you show up to an escape room and you don't want to solve puzzles, you don't want to interact with the props, you don't want to do anything, that escape room is going to remain still unless you have a very extraordinary game and game master that has figured out how to pull you through it. And same thing with immersive theater. You have to make your own good time, but you could just let the world go by and it's still a good time.
2: That's the hope, right? Because what we wanted in Club Drosselmeyer was ultimately sort of a magical experience and also a low barrier to entry for a lot of different kinds of people into a lot of different communities. And I initially saw Club Drosselmeyer as a trifecta between the swing dance community, which sort of has a high barrier to entry, right? Like some people have done a little bit of swing dancing, but they find it a little intimidating.
0: The actual people who are really good at it are very intimidating. As someone who has been dancing for a long time, but I don't consider myself fantastic. It is wonderful to watch and intimidating to dance with or next to people who are really good at this stuff.
2: Right. And sometimes it feels that way when you go to a dance. And honestly, David, I've seen you dance. You're great. And those dancers are only like a couple of months ahead of you in terms of skill level, right? They're wonderful dancers. They're performers, but it's not quite as hard as it looks.
0: I'm gonna give them more credit than you're giving them and I'm gonna give myself a bit less.
2: <laughs> well, they're my friends. So <laughs> I'm allowed to be like, oh, that, that's easy. But, yeah, I, I do feel like people tend to find that kind of environment It's sort of a high barrier to entry and they're scared to go to a dance where everybody's dancing. And they're the only one not dancing. Joss, we wanted it to be a place where you could go in and you could feel like you belong there and you could feel like there was something special going on and maybe you would dance even if you're not a dancer, even if you consider yourself a little intimidated by those other dancers. We love this idea of there being these onroads to these different communities, different ways to experience the show.
0: Yeah. I'm going to jump in with a little aside here because Lisa and I got into dancing because when we met, both of us had like a thousand friends who were getting married. And basically we were spending all of our time going to weddings. And I was overwhelmingly self-conscious on the dance floor no kidding oh overwhelmingly and so I had been going to these weddings and I was like well my options here are to sit and do nothing strike up conversations or dance and sometimes there's just no one worth talking to Mm -hmm. so I had said to Lisa I'm the kind of person who will feel uncomfortable with something until I actually know how to do it properly So let's go take a class or two. I figured we would go and take like maybe three classes and I would get just comfortable enough that like I didn't care and I could get on the dance floor for a couple of dances. We both loved it. We only stopped taking lessons during the pandemic and we haven't started up again only because we haven't been able to find enough time. But I think this winter we're going to be able to start finding enough time again.
2: It's such a great way to interact with people. And it's just such a simple way to spend a Friday night.
0: It's wonderful. And you can get different things out of it depending upon the way you choose to interact. We do couples dance. There's a lead and a follow. And Lisa at work makes about a thousand decisions a day. And so she comes home with decision fatigue and she's just like, I am so excited to just follow. Yeah. For me, I have gotten really into the puzzle of the lead, which there is a lot of silent communication and signaling your intentions and moving yourself around the floor in a way that it feels expressive, but also isn't bumping into other people. And so there's like all of these different moving pieces that I just love engaging with. And so that's my pitch to our audience. If you are uncomfortable dancing, there is probably something there for you that you might not realize.
2: You never
1: know. There's nothing a couple drinks won't solve.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely.
0: PG, that's your solution to everything.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's a good solution. But there is also there's that critical mass on the dance floor, right? When there's a bunch of people, and I know there's this one moment in the show where we have what we call a snowball, and we always do it to the waltz of the sugar plums. It's such a beautiful moment because we'll bring down the lights, we'll play the waltz of the sugar plums, and we do this thing that's just a tradition in our dance community called the snowball. And in the snowball, two people will start the dance. Brian, who is the Herr Drosselmeyer, and our best friend, Elise, who is ginger, Lamar, who is the singer and diva, they'll usually kick everybody off. And incidentally, Elise swore she would never dance. She was like, ugh, all of these swing dancers, and she was always with the band. But she couldn't resist for long, and now she's a great dancer. It seeps into your bones. You can't help it.
0: Elise is a riot and quite the scene stealer.
2: Oh, she's hilarious. I know, God help you if you're in a scene with Elise, right? She's really entertaining. Oh, so Brian and Elise will start and then Fritz Stahlbaum from the floor will call, snowball. And then Brian and Elise have to go off and get two more people. Now there are four people dancing and Fritz says, snowball. And then four people get out and they have to bring four more on. So now you have eight people dancing and the floor just compounds until it's full of people who are waltzing and bumping into each other and everybody has a different capacity of how to waltz. Some people just wobble back and forth, some people really know what they're doing, most people are somewhere in between. But when there's beautiful music and everybody's into it and there's a bunch of people on the floor, then yeah, you don't really feel that sense of self-consciousness, it's just movement.
0: It's a wonderful moment. Also, Lisa and I, our first dance at our wedding was a waltz, but that is probably right, the dance we are most out of practice
2: with.
1: I'm excited to brush off my cotillion skills. Last time I did yeah. dance <laughs> classic <laughs> dance classes was in the eighth grade.
2: <laughs> oh, there we go. Don't worry. It's one song. You just wobble around. It's great.
0: PG Dance thought it was a backup dancer for Janet Jackson and Madonna. What? What?
2: Yeah, but this was
1: back in my 20s. I did a bunch of music videos and I performed at the MTV Music Awards, but this is a different type of dancing.
2: (laughs) But no, no, it's, well, it's the same body, right? That's incredible. P.P.'s got moves. I would not exactly
1: say it's the same body as in my 20s, but we'll leave it
2: It at that. It is. It is. They age, but they're the same thing, ideally. (laughs)
0: We're taking a moment to thank our sponsor, Morty. Morty is a free app for discovering, planning, tracking, and reviewing escape rooms, haunts, and other immersive social outings. And Morty is now available for all to use on its fantastic website experience, iPhone app, and its brand new Android app, available now on the Google Play Store. I believe in Morty so much that I have a stake in it as an advisor.
1: You guys asked and Morty has answered. Android is now available on the Google Play Store. This is super exciting news for all the Android users out there.
0: That is right. The app is live, anyone can download it. And the most important thing to know is that they are working very hard on rolling out new features, not just to Android, but to the web experience and iOS. The Morty team is working tirelessly, and I cannot wait for them to tell you about what they have in the works. Things are cool.
1: (laughs) So now everybody can use Morty on their phones. Take it with you wherever you go to play.
0: You can learn more at Morty.app/repod. That's R-E-P-O-D to sign up and get a special badge for our listeners. Link and details in the show notes.
1: So where did the inspiration for combining all of these disparate elements into one show come from? I'm hearing that you have puzzles, there's music, there's dance, there's performance, there's immersive theater. I mean, it's a lot to throw into one event. What made you decide to combine it all in one place?
2: It is is a lot. It is a lot. I think that the puzzle side of the equation was more Brian's invention. And I think that the interactive storytelling, swing dancing, live band part of it was more my invention. When I first had this idea, I told Brian and he was like, that's insane. He's like, absolutely not. Do not do that.
1: (laughs) It is. There's so many moving parts.
0: I have been going for many years and I can confirm it was and still is insane.
2: It's insane, but it's totally doable. It's wonderful. I mean, it's doable because we have so many wonderful friends in Boston. We have such a great community. And I think there are so many pieces to it because there were so many reliable people that I could turn to. And I'm not a stressed out kind of person. I'm not a controlly kind of person. I have wonderful friends and I believe in them. And I think I'm pretty good at spotting talent. And so I have these sort of two columns in my brain and it's taken care of and not taken care of. And when I find somebody who can take care of things and I've got a vision for how it's going to look and I describe it to them and they just take care of it. And... It looks like it's crazy, but it's not really because we have so many wonderful people working on things. You just find a person and you send them in a direction and away they go.
1: Now, let me ask you this. Is it the same story every year? Because I know this isn't like a one-time event. It's an annual event, right? You run this every
2: December? Correct. We have six versions of Club Drosselmeyer right now. We started in 1939 and the show goes up to... Uh, 1944, 1943 and 1944 were our audio shows over the pandemic. And so initially we had decided that we were gonna do this and I saw a lot of echoes of what was happening in 2016 to the beginning of World War II What is it? When you have a hammer, everything's a nail. I just know a lot about that era and the music and the dance and the fashion. And I just saw so many echoes. And so for each year that we wrote, there was what was happening politically that year in 2016. And it sort of mirrored what was happening politically in Boston in 1939. And so we wrote these four shows each year, sort of incorporating themes that were relevant to us at that time. And that had also been very relevant to people in 1939.
1: Okay, so every year it is a different show. So this way, fans who come back will be treated to a new storyline.
2: Yep, every year is a new.
0: And so you had made the deliberate decision to, after you hit 1944, to loop back to 1939. And so last year was the first time that you began the loop again, this time also still with a new script. It was a very different show than the 2016 version of 1939. What was the thought process behind the looping and keeping this in the World War II era?
3: Yeah, so it was originally planned to run from 1939, 40, 41, 42, and then a loop back to 39 to sort of mirror the four-year presidential cycle. And also, so we don't just have to go on to the 50s. It seemed like a good point for us to loop. But then, of course, the pandemic happened in 2020, so we couldn't go back to 1939 then.
0: Buzzshot is escape room software powering business growth, player marketing, and improving the customer experience. They offer an assortment of pre and post game features, including robust waiver management, branded team photos, and streamlined review management for Yelp, TripAdvisor, Google reviews, and Morty. Buzzshot now has integration with Repod sponsor COGS for all of your technology needs. Let's focus on the reliability of BuzzShot's waiver and team photo software. It will still work even if it's taken offline. That's right, Wi Fi outages will not get in the way. And when that Wi Fi returns, everything will sync normally.
1: When asked about BuzzShot, Nick Moran of Phantom Peak said, We needed to work with the most reliable and robust platform available. It was quite a challenge and Buzzshot was the obvious choice due to their powerful platform and their flexible approach to working with us.
0: Streamline your marketing and grow your escape room business. Repod listeners get an extended free trial and 20% off your first three months with no setup fees or hidden charges. Visit buzzshot.com slash repod. That's R-E-P-O-D to learn more. Link and details in the show notes.
1: You don't need to know um, history to attend. I'm I'm like getting more and more worldly.
0: (laughs) No, not at all. I would say that what's interesting is that the history is a lot like the Nutcracker. I don't really know the Nutcracker characters. In fact, I will say that I spent more time reading about them in preparation for this interview than I ever had before going. And uh, I started to recognize a whole bunch of names and I was like, oh, OK, <laughs> that makes a little bit more sense to me now. But I enjoyed this plenty without having any of that context. And a lot of the key plot points um, They're built around the things that are happening in the room. You don't have to have an understanding of the grander context here. If you get that stuff, there's certain things that you're alluding to that I'm like, oh, yeah, I see what you did there. But it's not making or breaking the experience for anybody.
1: Yeah. How many shows do you run a season?
2: It changes every year. So initially we started with two shows. We had our opening and our closing night. And then we, (laughs) yeah, just as we worked out the kinks, it was closing night. And then we ran three shows at four and five. And our five shows was 2019. And then pandemic. And then we came back again in 2022 with three shows. And now we're really taking a gamble because we bumped it up to five again. And the reason we did that was largely because the space that we have now, we have it for two weekends and there's no way to not have it for two weekends because <laughs> if we want anything more than three shows, then we have it for a second weekend anyway. So we're like, maybe we'll add another show to it. But before we go into the technical details, I just want to throw this out there. PG, I feel like with throwing all this stuff at you that sounds so crazy and so didactic and weird, I'm like, okay, so you've got to know how to lindy hop and you got to have a perfect outfit and you'd better know a lot about history. But when I was a teacher back in the day, a long time ago, there's always this sense of what do we actually want people to feel when they leave this space. And for me, for Club Drosselmeyer, it was really clear that I wanted people to feel a sense of agency and empowerment and hope, the sense of like, I can do this, I can be part of this world. And so there's a lot going on, but there should always be a way to fit in there. So don't feel like you have to know anything in order to do that. It is specifically designed for you to be able to participate however the hell you want, even if the way that you want is to sit and have a drink and look amazing and zone out. That is also an option.
1: I guess I asked about how many you run, because for me, with a lot of these open world type events, there is a lot going on. And it takes a while to understand the rules. I always want to go twice in the run of an event because the second time is almost always better than the first time because you've done the tutorial now you know how to actually play. And I always get a little bit overwhelmed with open world because I'm like, there's so much to see and do and I get FOMO, I wanna do all of it. And you know, and then I just end up sitting at the bar, chatting to the bartender, which actually I think is a really great place to start because everybody knows how to sit and chat with the bartender. It doesn't feel weird, like you're interrupting people in conversation in the corner. And usually the bartenders are trained to like give you a starting space because that's just what bartenders do Everywhere around the world, they give you advice on where to go and maybe go talk to this guy or whatever. I guess that's my tip for (laughs) attending these events. If you're feeling overwhelmed, go find direction from a bartender.
0: So a bunch of thoughts based off of just hearing your reaction. The first one is even just talking about the clothing piece here. You don't have to dress up in period appropriate clothes. In fact, Lisa and I never really have. You just have to be dressed up.
1: But it does make it more fun.
0: Oh, yeah. If you want to go for it. But like you will only stand out negatively if you're like showing up in a t-shirt and jeans. That is the thing that will make you look like, "Oh, that person doesn't belong." But as long as you've dressed up and put some effort in, you will look like you are a part of this environment.
1: I've also found it only takes really one accessory, too. Oh you know, yeah. The one accessory that like a hat, yep. right? And right. and that's really all it takes for you to really feel like you're in that period.
0: Yeah, I will wear a regular suit and tie and then I have a hat. Your fedora. (laughs) Lisa will wear a fascinator and whatever dress she grabbed out of the closet. That is all that we do. We don't go nuts with it in terms of going out and buying the vintage clothing or any of that. You don't have to go nuts with it. And that's the same thing with the nutcracker and the history and the puzzles and the interaction. Like you just have to find whatever you're comfortable with At least just turn the knob to like the first setting. And then once you're there, you can decide which knob you want to turn up more. And in my case, it's usually the dancing and the interacting one. I can't puzzle in the environment of Club Drosselmeyer. I've taken some of the puzzles home and solved them after the fact. But with all of the things going on around, my brain is like squirrel. (laughs)
2: There's a lot
1: going on. So what kind of puzzles are these? Are these like pen and paper puzzles? Are they more like environmental puzzles of the type that you would see in an escape room? Are they like social engineering puzzles where you have to interact with the characters? Is it probably all of the above?
3: Yeah, I'd say it's a good mix of all of those. It's mostly pen and paper, but we do like to put in some that require more interaction and maybe a, a physical puzzle here and there as well. Because we don't do a particularly long run, we can't do the same large scale buildouts that you might see at an escape room. So that's a bit of a limiting factor there.
1: I don't mind that because otherwise you get so distracted by trying to be like, is this a puzzle? Is that, you know, if, if you know that puzzles are hidden in the environment, very soon a lot of your experience is spent focusing on red herrings as opposed to somebody coming up and handing you a puzzle. And if you know that's when the puzzling happens, it's easier to relax sometimes.
2: We try and keep our puzzles diegetic and within the world. So it's unusual for somebody to just walk over and be like, here's a Sudoku. But (laughs) sometimes you'll go up to somebody, nobody will ask you to do something unless you approach them. And so if you go up to somebody and you're like, oh, hey, Clara Stahlbaum, I heard you're having trouble with your robot. And she'll say, boy, I really am. Thank you so much for asking about it. I think that it might be the capacitor coupler. And you're like, oh, you think so? And she's, yeah, but I don't know. I'm not sure. I've been doing some research on it. These are the notes that I took. I really could use an extra set of eyes on these notes. Would you mind looking over these notes for me really quick? It's just my grad students, they are never around. They're always so busy. It's really hard to find good help. And she'll hand you a puzzle and away you go. And then you'll come back to her and you'll be like, Claire, I think your work is good, but I actually found a message in there and that forwards the story.
0: Yeah. One of my favorite examples in a past Club Drosselmeyer, and I think this interaction has popped up a few different times in a few different ways over the years, is somebody who is trying to forge immigration papers to save someone or someone who needs help getting their immigration papers approved. There's frequently some kind of immigration papers related puzzle that for me is always one of the more touching moments of it. It's a smaller scale, more personal thing. And I always love that kind of interaction.
2: I love those storylines. I'm so glad that you noticed Because I think that's such a wonderful story about what was happening back then and is happening now too, is that, there's a world war and all these big pieces are moving. But at the same time, a lot of people had family and friends that were stuck behind enemy lines or in places that were recently invaded and they were trying to get them out. And these are people who are pulling whatever strings they possibly can in order to get their friends and family to a safe place. And that's happening right now in our world as well. And thinking a little bit about, The administrative hoops that you have to go through in order to try and get your family and friends into a safe country.
0: Yeah. The reality of bureaucracy is absolutely horrifying. The puzzle version is much better. (laughs) Yep. Absolutely. Over the years, I feel like it has fluctuated, but how many performers does it take to put on a single show?
2: It's a really good question because we have so many people who want to be part of things that often we just find ways to incorporate them. And I think that the show could very easily function with much fewer people than it does.
0: We call this the room escape artist method of producing things.
2: (laughs) Right, who do you have for friends? Who wants to do things? Do they have good ideas? Yeah, absolutely, why not? Let's do that, that sounds fun. One way that I do try and limit myself is that I don't have any volunteers in Club Drosselmeyer everybody is paid, even if they are underpaid. (laughs) It's not union people. It's typically people who have day jobs and just want to do this for fun, Uh, at least in Boston. There's not a lot of full-time union actors in Boston, and we only have five shows. So even if there were, it would be hard to support them. But yeah, we typically, last year, it, it inflates. Because we'll say to our dancers or like a dance choreographer, and we'll be like, okay, so we have X amount of dollars for costumes and to pay your dancers, and we have three shows. And they say, great, is there an upper limit on how many people they can bring to perform? And you're like, no, I guess not. last year, our swing dance team showed up with like 18 people, and we're like, oh, wow, that's a lot of swing dancers.
0: I mean, the band is great.
1: And you have a chance to perform. So how many performers total have you been averaging then?
2: So we always have five acts and we usually have about 12 interactors. And the acts themselves will inflate or deflate.
0: And by acts, you mean different performing like troops or individuals. Sometimes you'll have an aerialist. Sometimes you'll have Mm -hmm. a Lindy Hop team. Sometimes you'll have some waltzers. Sometimes you'll have jugglers or whoever is there, but there's a whole bunch of acts that cycle on over the course of the evening. They're almost like the timer for the event.
1: Performances. Yes. Okay.
2: I was thinking like act one, act two, act three. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. Floor shows is another way to say it. Yeah. Last year we had some really fantastic ballerinas and then we had a flamenco dancer and we had some acrobats. And this year it sounds like we're going to have some really epic tap dancers that I'm excited about. We always have five more acts. And like David said, there's a timer for the show because they go along the pattern of the Nutcracker, right? So we follow the score of the Nutcracker and then these acts pop up at different times. And yeah, roughly 12 interactors and the interactors are specifically there to carry storyline, move puzzles along come up with crazy stories, talk to guests. And then on top of that, we have a staff of, we call them waiters because you sort of have your nice little vest, your Club Drosselmeyer vest and your black pants and hosts and guides. And they're the ones that know the puzzles, can clue for the puzzles. They're sort of out of character. If you're confused, they can move you around. They usually help people get into the game. They usually bring people to the end of the game. So we just have this wonderful staff of essentially the GMs right
1: oh that's really smart
0: they are wonderful and the fact that they' servers waiter types it does the bartender thing that you were describing PG right. yeah
1: that makes it that makes a ton of sense to me the
0: bartender is actually busy don't go up to the bartender unless you want to buy a <laughs>
1: she iron. slammed <laughs>
3: <laughs> but I'd say to answer your question 30 to 40 counting the waiters and the floor shows and the 30 to 40. Actors. Yeah.
1: How many attendees do you typically have?
3: At our old venue, we had 150, and in the new venue, we we're able to go up to about 170.
1: Okay, so... That's a reasonable ratio for a high-end immersive production. It's reasonable, but it's high.
2: It's actually much higher than...
0: I think it's a very high rate. It's yeah. much
2: higher than the rate of active interactors at something like Galactic Star Cruiser, right? We couldn't believe it. We went to Galactic Star Cruiser and they had half the number of interactors and support staff.
0: And the ratio was about half. The ratio. I think that Galactic Star Cruiser has about the same ratio, but they have more service people than they do performers. Oh, right. But the 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 service people are doing so much. So much stuff. actually the magic behind Galactic Star Cruiser.
2: I agree. I agree with that. Yeah. And I would say that about Meyer as well, is that we have a support staff that you don't even see that makes a huge difference because we're just talking about cast, right? So 30 to 40 cast, but then we've got our crew. So on top of 30 to 40 cast, we've got the band and the sound guy, the lights, production manager, stage manager, full bar staff, people that are loading in and loading out. I mean, yeah, it's quite probably production.
0: another 20 or 30 people there. Yeah. So asking as somebody who is doing a similar thing with events, different type of production, but I'm curious, how do you feel about working on something that is so short lived? I like it because it has this uh,
3: cadence where it builds up and you get really busy and have to get your act together. But then once it's over and you can start thinking about the next year and take a little break for escape room folks who are running an escape room. You end up running it for a lot longer, which
0: I think, for me at least, will be less exciting. It's nice coming up with new things every year. I feel pretty similarly when it comes to Recon and our tours. I do appreciate that there's this date that everything has to be done. And if you don't have that work done, it just doesn't happen. But the work always gets done.
1: It's why we run the podcast in seasons instead of doing a weekly podcast. And you burn out a lot faster when you're doing that. Because this isn't like your full-time Jobs, you guys have other jobs. This is something you do once a year,
2: like a passion project, right? When we started it, I was doing Green Door Labs full time. And over the pandemic, I joined a larger studio. And so that was actually a big question for me on whether I wanted to join a larger studio. I was like, will I be able to run Club Drosselmeyer while I still have a, a studio job that's not just me? And it was a concern that I brought up when I joined Fablevision. I was like, can I still run Club Drosselmeyer? And they're like, we trust you, you can figure it out. Yeah, and so far so good. I mean, gosh, last year I taught a class at Emerson, ran Club Drosselmeyer, and started a bunch of new projects at Fablevision. That was a bad idea. I do not recommend that. So I will not be teaching at the same time that I do everything else this year. But yeah, it did not start as a passion project. And I think eventually it won't be a passion project. I think someday we would like Josselmeyer to be able to stand on its own and support one or both of us. I love it so much and I believe in it. I believe what we're doing. And so I want to be able to grow it and expand it and make it into something that can stick around.
0: Before we move on from Club Drosselmeyer, I want to talk about the tone and the message that shifts from year to year, because it feels like some years have been very serious. Other years have leaned into more playful or whimsical. And in a couple of years, I would say probably even dabbling in farce to an extent. How does this work? How do you decide what is driving the tone in a given year?
2: A lot of the writing is me. And so a lot of the writing is where things are that year and where I am that year. And there was this really interesting thing that happened from the 1920s to the 1930s to the 1940s. And I always think this is really fascinating that when things are bad enough, then people are sullen and morose and depressed about it. But when things are like really bad, like exceptionally bad, then the rebellion is joy right?
0: The gallows humor and the joy, and there's this weird realm that they both live in together.
2: Exactly. That's when the gallows humor starts to come into play, where if things are actually really starting to get dangerously bad, then you kind of need that humor and that lightness just to protect your soul. As a human, we can't always be looking at evil in the face all the time directly. And so I think In 2016, when things were starting to get bad, then I was thinking that sense of like, yeah, we're looking at it straight in the face and like bad things happen. And when you make bad choices, bad things happen. And then as 2017 started to roll around and then 2018 and then 2019, and then it's this question of, oh my God, everybody's mental health is literally declining, right? Like we can't face all this bad all the time, straight on. We need some levity if we're going to survive. And so I think yearly the show has it's always rooted in true history and real issues, but every year I think I've found that those moments of silliness and absurdity are more and more important. And I have had people that literally have said that Drosselmeyer, especially or the pandemic, it was a bright spot of joy in a very dark world. And the years that we were in quarantine and my God, we've been through some years the show is eight years old and what in eight years. And so tone is responding to that. And I think that I have found what Club Drosselmeyer has to offer is sort of a catharsis, right? This concept of being a little bit merciful to ourselves and to our visitors We need some moments of joy and laughter and silliness. And it's okay to acknowledge that all of this laughter is happening in very difficult times, but it's still important to have it.
0: I very much feel that. and I think that kind of perspective was also very much on display when we had Tasha from Project Avatar in Ukraine on the podcast a couple seasons ago. That was by far the darkest episode of Reality Escape Pod that we have ever made. And I hope ever make, to be honest. But her sense of humor in that was a very particular type of sense of humor that you can feel emerging from that.
1: The resilience. Yeah.
0: It was a dark levity to the way that she looked at the world and the situation. And I think it's an important part of the human experience.
2: I agree. Humor is not a luxury. It's a lifeline. And we can't deny the importance of that, especially in the worst of times. And I think that's the message of Club Drossenmeyer as well, right? things can be bad and we can still do it, right? We can do hard things, which I think is a lot of the message of resilient communities. Like you said, your podcaster from the Ukraine. Sometimes things are bad and we can still, we could do that too. And so I I do want people to leave this show feeling the sense of like levity and empowerment and purpose. Like we can work together, we can do small things and we can also work together and do big things.
0: We have a couple of random questions for the both of you. Just changing subjects a little bit. The first one I'll throw to and You have been teaching game design off and on for a few years now. What do you feel is the most important game design lesson to impart on your students?
2: There are two things that I think are really important when it comes to game design. One is play games, right? Play as many of them as you possibly can and as many different kinds as you possibly can. And the second thing that I tell them is build games because a lot of people like to think about building games and that really doesn't do anybody any good at all because nobody knows what you didn't build. And I like to tell them that the difference between a novelist and a dreamer is one book. So Build something, build anything. It can be terrible. It doesn't matter. Just build and that's how you learn.
1: There's a number of puzzle challenges like Puzzle Timber or like Enig March, which mm-hmm. are just yeah. offers small challenges. Everyone's participating. You don't have to create anything complex. Just one tiny little puzzle, but it's about the daily habit.
0: Yeah. Brian, what is the Nob Yoshigahara Puzzle Design Competition? And what was it like to attempt to solve more than 50 complex puzzles in a couple of days? The
3: uh, puzzle design competition, as we call it, is a competition that's been running since, I think, 2001. It's as a tribute to a a famous puzzle designer named Nabushigahara, who's created a number of very great puzzles. Like Rush Hour is one that you're probably aware of that he created.
0: That is a phenomenal puzzle. For those who are wondering, that is sold by ThinkFun, sponsor of uh, this past recon, and it is the parking lot puzzle where you have a whole bunch of cars that are in a gridlock and you have one path that you need to get one car out and you have to move everything around until you can free that one piece. The puzzle design
3: competition is actually one of the things that attracted me to the international puzzle party. They take place at the same time. So the competition happens at the International Puzzle Party, and there's usually between 60 and 80 new puzzles that are submitted every year. And all the participants of the International Puzzle Party get to try them out over the course of the party. And there's also a panel of judges that works their way through the puzzles and does the judging.
1: And so these are all mechanical puzzles?
3: Yes, all mechanical puzzles. (laughs)
1: Are they mechanical puzzles of a certain type, like the wooden ones or the metal ones or just like a mixture?
3: No, it's a mixture of all different types. There's been a lot more 3D printed puzzles recently, but still a good portion are made out of wood and uh, and metal as well. Puzzle boxes, disentanglement puzzles, take apart puzzles, put together puzzles, burrs, you name it. Uh, there's always a good variety there. But uh, you were asking what it was like trying to solve 60 of them over the course of a few days. That's one of the really tricky things is the judging has to take place before the puzzle party starts just for scheduling reasons. So I think I only had maybe a day and a half to get through as many of them as I could. Fortunately, I owned a few of them already and was able to borrow some before the party to try and solve. But still, it's a lot of puzzles to get through in a short amount of time. And I like to just give a certain amount of time to each one of them, maybe 15 minutes on each one, just so I have some time. And then with whatever time I have left, I'll try and spend on the puzzles that I think are most likely to be candidates for an award. Sounds intense. (laughs) It's pretty (laughs) intense. Yeah. But I love it. Even after the judging's done, I'll spend the rest of the party in that room, mostly working on these puzzles because there's so much to do and it's fun seeing other people's reactions to them as well.
0: One last question, Kellyanne. Brett Keener, who has helped me prep for some of the portions of this interview.
1: That guy with the puzzles.
0: That guy with the puzzles.
1: (laughs) He
2: knows everybody.
0: He does. Brett's the best. He wants to know if you are aware of the fact that your beginner Chinese lesson on YouTube has 3.3 million views and (gasps) wants to know the backstory. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Of all the things, I am very surprised to hear that particular question. (laughs) I am aware that it has 3.3 million views, but I can attribute that in no way to myself, actually. I lived in China for about five years and I started as a teacher and then I ended up working as a game designer. That's how I got into game design. And so I started with this company called Active Chinese and they had me designing games and interactives to teach English speakers how to learn Chinese. And so we had this whole team of animators and we would create these very small simple lessons. And that, God, this was 2007, somewhere around there, 2006, 2007. And I was like, oh, we should try this thing they have called YouTube. Yeah, it was this crazy new thing.
0: Maybe it'll catch on.
2: Maybe it'll catch on. I don't know. It looks fun. And so I individually was like, they didn't want to have anything to do with it. I was like, whatever, I'll post it. I'm just this rando. So I put my name on it and and posted it. And uh, yeah, and of course, YouTube is a thing. And a lot of people want to learn how to speak Chinese. It ended up being under my account, but it was for the active Chinese company. I did not animate that lesson. You can tell Brett. Before we close out, when is Club Drosselmeyer this year? I'm so glad you asked. So Club Drosselmeyer this year is going to be on December 9th and 10th, and then we'll run the next weekend for December 15th, 16th, and 17th. And doors open at seven o'clock. Show starts at 730 on the dot. So come and join us. And are
1: tickets available now?
2: Yeah. So if you go to clubdrosselmeyer.com, then you'll be able to find tickets.
1: And David, I know you're running this Operation Nutcracker. So is that going to be for just one specific date or is it going to be for all of them?
0: That is December 10th. Those tickets you can purchase from Room Escape Artist on roomescapeartist.com. It'll be in the navigation under our events. The most important thing is that you go to Club Drosselmeyer. But if you want to come hang out Play around with some of the things we're going to be doing before and after. Come and grab our ticket. We've really priced this basically at cost for us. This is a thing that we're doing because we love it. And we just want people to be a part of Club Drosselmeyer. And we have come up with some things that we feel like layering them on top will be helpful and fun for people.
1: But that's a separate ticket.
0: No, when you buy from us, you get a ticket to Club Drosselmeyer that night.
1: Good to know. Uh, Kellyanne and Brian, what is the best way for people to follow your work or to
2: connect with you? We are pretty active on Facebook. If you look us up, Club Drosselmeyer on Facebook or also uh, clubdrosselmeyer.com. I try to post on Instagram, but I don't always keep up with it. You can also just reach out to us, Kellyanne at greendoorlabs.com, if you ever have any questions. Okay.
1: And we'll have all the links for that
2: in the show notes. Thank you guys so much for having us. And David, thank you as always for being Club Drosselmeyer's number one greatest fan. <laughs> it's always so great to have you there.
0: And uh, Thank you for being on the show with us. I have been preaching the gospel of Club Drosselmeyer for a very long time. I'm glad that we can send that message to even more people because everyone should go. It's my favorite December tradition.
2: Yeah, please do come and join us. It's getting better every year.
0: The Reality Escape Pod is produced by Teresa Piazza with support by Lisa Spira and Richard Burns. We're edited by Steve Ewing of Stand Inside Media, music by Ryan Elder, logo by Janine Proct. And all of this is brought to you by roomescapeartist.com, your home for well-researched, rational, and reasonably humorous escape room and immersive gaming content and events. You've made it to the end of the episode. I'm guessing that you had a good time because otherwise you would have bailed. How about you go and take that good time straight over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Help other people find what we're doing. It really helps us out. And think about who you just helped out by helping them find a podcast that they're really going to enjoy. Go do it. Do it now. Thank you. Well, folks, it is that time. You know exactly the one I'm talking about. It's the one where the desperate content creator tells you, please, please join our Patreon, please. I know you hear it from everybody, but it means so much to us. The amount of time and energy And money that we put into producing shows like this to the degree that we produce them and all of the other things that we're doing, it just takes a lot. And our patrons, every single one of them matters at every single level. So if you have the money available and it's not going to be a hardship for you, please consider backing us on Patreon. And if it is going to be a hardship, please don't.
1: And backing us at the $5 level gets you access to the Ria Discord, and it also gets you our bonus after show. The show goes on for like another 40 to 50 minutes usually. A lot of times we have the guests joining us. I mean, that's, that's longer than that cup of coffee will last you. At the $15 level, you also get access to our Spoilers Club. Here, we take deep dives into iconic, well-known escape rooms, and we're joined by the creators who come in and gives us exclusive behind-the-scenes director's cut-style commentary. This is some of my favorite content to produce because I love talking about escape rooms in full.
0: You can learn more at patreon.com slash roomescapeartist link in details in the show notes we'd like to thank our highest level patrons panic room escapism olivier escape jonathan driscoll breakout games Derek tam joshua rosenfeld byron delmonico keystone escape games scott olson paula swan rex miller and the ministry of peculiarities thank you for your ongoing support
2: Brian and I have been building this together since 2016. Brian, quite reluctantly, I might add, in 2016, he did not want to do it. Seemed
3: like a crazy idea.
2: (laughs) But then by 2017, he was like, okay, I'm on board. And then by 2017, not only was he on board, but man, he had ideas. Strong opinions. (laughs) What happened was there was an ending and... There was a decision point at the ending, and I thought it was very clear that this decision point was a vote. But Brian thought that it was a sort of a winner takes all, that if somebody chose A, that it automatically triggered A. I'm typically GMing, right? Whereas Brian actually plays Herr Drosselmeyer and has to interact with everybody all night. So basically we
3: had a disagreement about what the ending should be but myself as a character has been telling people as they've been coming to me how things are going to resolve or how i think things are going to resolve
2: so the guests think it's going to end one way because brian's told the guests that ending a is going to happen meanwhile i've told the entire cast backstage ending b
3: i thought it would be a brilliant idea to just improvise something to try and resolve the situation.
2: <laughs> I went th- this moment, this <laughs> glorious moment when the ending, it is scripted, right? And oh, we've yeah. all practiced this. And so everybody's like, oh, it's going to be ending B. And so they start doing the lines for ending B. And my delightful husband walks <laughs> onto the stage. He's not supposed to be on the stage. And he says, but wait. And everybody's like, what the hell is happening? I'm standing in the balcony and the whole cast looks at me and I'm like, keep going, I don't know what he's gonna do.
3: So there's a decision that needs to be made by a character. And basically I threw it out to the audience to collect the necessary evidence to sway this character, who in the actual show, doesn't actually have a decision to make.
2: He has no lines. She was our costume designer.
3: So I basically asked our costume designer what the ending should be based on evidence that was yelled out by the audience, and this was all completely unscripted.
2: So he's calling on the audience and he's making them stand up and defend their choices. Nobody's ever had to do this before, and both sides end up making like a really compelling argument, and there's still no clear evidence for the ending. And so he turns to the costume designer, who of course is the best dressed person there, and says, "Well, what?" you think colonel wilson <laughs> so this costume designer is like uh he's not liked, right he wasn't planning on anything he's like i think ending a sounds sure. good
3: he didn't hear enough evidence and he decided that's the way it should go so i turned in disgust and discussed <laughs> and left the stage
2: <laughs> he did so i ended up getting my ending after all yeah so that was a major marital dispute <laughs> And now we know, before we go into
3: anything- We're going to get it in writing, writing, what the conditions of the game are.
2: Notarized.
1: (laughs) Absolutely.